0: If we haven't met yet, my name is Tony and I am your host. I'm so excited today uh, to give you a very special episode. Normally, our Deeper Dive episodes land on uh, Thursday, Friday, but today I'm going to give you another podcast interview, this time with Christina Dent. Her newest book, Curious, End It For Good, is all about the idea of uh, addiction, it's about the Cycle of Harm, it's about her experience as a foster mom. It was really good conversation. And as someone who is so involved in the recovery world, this is a very interesting dialogue. What she has to say is a little bit controversial. And uh, if you know somebody in recovery, you're going to have feelings about it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And now, without any further ado, here's my dialogue with Christina Dent. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited today to have uh, author and speaker and uh, nonprofit founder Christina Dent with us. Christina, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today.
1: Thanks, Tony. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Well, I always love to kind of start out with the macro and kind of the bigger picture. Um, you've done a lot of things. We're gonna get into your story because it's weaved into the purpose of this nonprofit. Um, from being a foster mom to growing up as a conservative Christian to now running a nonprofit, um, wh- what or how would you describe the calling that God has placed in your life?
1: Mm, such a good question. Um, so I think it's twofold. One is kind of the specific way that calling is playing out right now, which is kind of my current calling, um, and the other is kind of what I think is the bigger the bigger calling to that. The current calling is working on this issue of drugs and addiction inviting people to learn and to rethink some of the ways that we have approached that um, in the church and in our communities, as well as from a policy perspective. It's kind of two different angles of that. Um, and then the, the bigger part of that is through working on such a difficult kind of polarizing issue, people feel very strongly about what we do with drugs and people who use them. I have really come to just develop this passion for Respectful dialogue and Mm. for inviting people into a conversation to learn without everyone having to be on the same page when you begin. And that's just something our culture is losing at a rapid rate, the ability to talk with people that we disagree with in a way that actually fosters growth and an expansion of our perspectives and the ability to see how other people think, which to me is an extension of being able to see other people as made in the image of God. And that there's all these different ways you can see the world, all these different experiences people have that have formed the way that they think. We didn't just wake up this morning and decide how we thought that's been formed through these decades of our lives, and so uh, I have really come to love that. And um, I don't know where that will lead me one day. I would I'd love to figure out a way to um, to invite people into conversations about faith who are not yet believers in a way that allows them to come and learn and wrestle with hmm. what are the claims of Jesus and. What does that mean for my life Um, without them feeling like they're either out or they're all the way in? You know, they've got to sort of uh, become a Christian to even come close to a conversation about faith. I think we need to give people opportunities to be wherever they are on uh, their spiritual journey, whether that's very far away or whether it's very close. And how can we come alongside people on the journey that they're on and on the journey God might be bringing them on?
0: I I think it's uh, I love this idea about respectful dialogue, because I I do think it is an art that we're losing. Um, One of the things that I read in your material is you're a self-professed conservative Christian. Uh, I would tend to lean that way myself or say Orthodox Christianity. Um, I think Christians, like a lot of our tribe, are the ones who are most difficult at being in respectful dialogues, right? Like it's it's oftentimes not something we're super open to. And I'm just curious, and it's probably an unfair question to even ask, but like, where do you think the breakdown of creating tension and dialogue and being okay with it, where do you think that that's born out of? Because I do feel like it's it's sliding away from us in this crazy way, and there's a lot of leaders listening. Where does the breakdown, where does it start?
1: So I think there's two things. One is, if you're going to have a respectful dialogue about someone, you have to be vulnerable. To allow someone's perspective to sort of take up space in the room, to be willing to listen to them, uh, requires a level of vulnerability and openness. There's no way that you can be open without even the vulnerability of saying, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to give you space. I'm going to give you brain space in my brain to hear what you have to say. And that's hard for all of us. Mm. Um, You know, (laughs) vulnerability is just hard no matter what it is. And and that requires vulnerability. Um, And I think it also is the challenge that we have grown up being taught, whether explicitly or implicitly, that the more passionate about something that you are, The more um, bold and confident and going to stand my ground, going to plant my flag, uh, that's kind of the the culture of advocacy that we have. You know, you get excited about something and you learn about it and you're passionate about it. And it's kind of the more vocal and the more oppositional you are, the more deeply committed to your cause you are. Um, I think that's really harmful to actually winning Mm. people to your cause because People aren't, you know, I think about it as if you were looking over a field and you saw people coming at you with spears and swords and, you know, whatever else they have, what are you going to do? Are you going to say, well, I think we should open the gates and welcome welcome them in. Let's <laughs> sit down and have a conversation. No, right. you don't. You go get your own spears and swords. Now you get your shields. out. You And you have a war happening. Um, right. People aren't converted in war. They. What we need to do is figure out how to build bridges for people so that wherever they are, maybe they're... 10 miles away from us on whatever issue it is we're passionate about. Um, how can we build 10 miles worth of bridges to go meet them where they are, understand why they're there and invite them to take one step towards us, whether that's just listening to the way that we think and why we think that way. That's the way that people move towards something is having bridges built to them and then the respect of wherever they land on that journey. So it, Uh, You know, we want people to sort of be we want to give them like five minutes of information and then say, now, don't you agree with me? And the reality is that all of us have formed the way we think over years. And it's probably going to take a couple of years to shift our thinking, especially if it's on something that we feel strongly about. Um, Even if there's evidence there for that, it's really, really hard to change our minds about anything. That is just part of the human condition. It's stressful to be in a sense of uncertainty. And we'll get into this with my story too. And just, you know, I could, I I tell the story in 30 minutes, but this is a year and a half of wrestling for me over this experience that I'm having, what I'm learning, and what does this mean for the way that I think
0: uh, I love the fact that you mentioned that you tell the story in 30 minutes because it's on my list of notes to talk about is the so that the TEDx talk is kind of it's hit, um, I think, over over 25,000 views close to it at this point. Um, you know, it's it's been seen by tons and tons of people. There are a lot of leaders who are trying to communicate what they're passionate about. And um, how did you prepare for that talk? like I I would love to hear kind of the creative process. You're taking a year and a half worth of material with the most passionate thing in your life, the adoption of this foster child, Joanna's part of the story, all of it, and you're crunching it all into 30 minutes where you're trying to move people to, to maybe thinking about something a little different. What was the crafting of the message process like for you?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, So the first time that I ever gave the talk that became the TEDx talk was about two months prior to the TEDx conference. And it it was I had no idea TEDx would even be on the, the horizon at that point. I had just been invited to come to a community group in Jackson, Mississippi, where I live, and give a talk on this thing that I was going around the state leading discussions about that at that time were book discussions on this book that I had read. And I had never actually presented the way that I think about these issues now Uh, but they said hey come we're not going to read the book ahead of time you just come do a presentation and tell us what you think and why and i thought oh no i don't know how to do that i'm just like leading a discussion on this other person's book and let's talk about what he says um and so i went and i just kind of built this i'm not a designer i just built my own powerpoint presentation thinking through what makes sense to me about this how how would i put this into my own words about what i've learned and why I find it so compelling to shift towards this health-centered approach approach to drugs and addiction. And so I went to that, and it was a 45-minute presentation. Now, TEDx talks are you know 12 to 18 minutes. Um, so I went to that presentation. They invited me. Um, there was a, a guy that was at the presentation who happened to have a friend on the TEDx speaker committee for that conference mm. that was coming up. And he saw the presentation, went to his friend and said, you should really consider having this as part of the conference. I know the speaker deadline is already passed, but this is compelling. And so they invited me to submit a proposal for it. So here's the thing. At that point, point, even with that 45-minute presentation, my personal story was not part of it. I was only communicating the facts of what I had learned, why I thought that was compelling for how I changed my mind on this issue. And I went to a friend of mine um, that I went to college with once I got this invitation to do the TEDx talk. I had six weeks to prepare. And he helped me totally rebuild the presentation deck and change out the imagery and make it much more visually uh, appealing. And he said, where's your story? Isn't this whole thing out of this experience that you had with this birth mother of one of your foster sons? I said, yeah, but that's not like the the point. That isn't, I mean, that's I want to communicate the ideas. And he said, no, no, no. You've got to include your story. That's how you got here. That is the connection point for people to understand why you are talking about this issue as somebody who supported a totally different approach your whole life. And you are a conservative Christian. And you've got to include that. So my encouragement to leaders is to find the connection points in their own life, the stories in their own life. Once you start looking for those, you'll find stories happening to you all the time that illustrate things that you want to communicate to people. Tell the stories. People, uh, even if they find your point compelling, it is the story that anchors that point in their mind. And that is something that I found over and over again as I've done presentations all over the place now on this is just Hearing stories, whether it's the story of Joanne that I tell or weaving in other stories about who did I talk to last week and what did they say and and how is that important for what we're talking about today. People need stories. Our brains are wired for narrative. It is a lot harder. It's vulnerable, again, to tell stories from your own life um, or from other people's lives, although I'm a big proponent of always get permission to tell someone's story. Uh, I, I just think that is really important not to use other people's experiences or stories without their permission. But it's vulnerable. It takes work to think through those stories and those connection points. And it absolutely is what makes a point powerful and sticky in people's minds.
0: Well, I'll tell you that um, you did a masterful job on the TEDx talk. And as I listened to it, I thought um, I thought that the story really is where the juice of kind of this conversion experience on your thought process when it comes to the war on drugs. And so when did you, when did you begin to um, rethink if you could kind of take us into that story a little bit for the listeners who may not have, have watched the talk yet, when did you begin to rethink that maybe your view on drugs in America was um, misguided?
1: Mm, Yeah. Uh, So to set that up, I am born and raised in Mississippi. Grew up in a wonderful Christian family, um, conservative family. Had a very happy childhood. Had no interest in drugs growing up. I went to college. I have a degree in Bible. Did not use drugs there either. Yeah, you've never done drugs. Uh, no, no. So this is my my background is not sort of this, you know. I was experimenting or I went sure. through an addiction or anything like that. Um, so I'd, I had nothing – I had no direct connection to the issue. No family members struggling with addiction. Um, and so I, I, I took what I sort of got from my culture, which is people who use drugs are bad people. They're out there doing bad things. And the criminal justice system is the right place for them because that's where bad people need to go. Um, And that sounds very simplistic, but I just didn't have anything else other than sort of what I heard in the culture. And that is what I heard in in the culture broadly, nationally, locally that I grew up in. So my husband and I became foster parents um, in 2014. And through that experience, I began to learn that more than half of the children who are in foster care are there for some drug-related cause from their parents is a huge driver of why we have children in foster care is related to drugs and addiction. Hmm. And then in 2015, um, we got a call for another baby. We already had one foster son at that time, um, got a call for another baby at the time I had, my hands were so full. I had three little kids at that point. I was homeschooling. It was just crazy. And my husband said, you know, I know we've said no to every call we've gotten Um, cause our hands are full, but I just have a feeling that we're supposed to say yes. And he is not someone who has that regularly. He's not kind of the person who's sort of always feeling like he's got a word from the Lord. Um, and so it was really interesting to hear him say that. I thought, oh my gosh, well, you know, here you are sitting at your office feeling like you've got this call from the (laughs) Lord. You're like, yeah, right. You better dial, you
0: better dial God back and check (laughs) again.
1: Yeah. You're at your office 40 hours a week. I'm here with these kids. Um, but I ended up just really trying to lean into that a little bit and think through and just, and I tell the story in the book of just really looking at where we were at that point. It was in December and realizing, oh my gosh, I've already done all my Christmas shopping. Like, I don't even know how that's possible that I did that in the beginning of December, but it's done. Like maybe the Lord has opened this window for us to say yes to this child. And so he came to our house straight from the hospital after he was born. He had been uh, removed from his mom, Joanne's custody, because she had been using drugs while she was pregnant. And so he came to our house, and I didn't know anything about drugs or addiction at that point, could not fathom how a mom who loved her child could use drugs while she was pregnant. And so when I brought Beckham, um, this tiny little baby, to his first visit with his mom, Joanne, at the child welfare office, um, I felt really nervous about that. And also, like, I already kind of understood what was happening here. Um, and I am here to kind of protect this child, and I'm going to let you have yeah, your your brain meditation. had kind of
0: filled in all of the, yes. the spaces with your predisposed theology.
1: Yes, yes. And it makes it easier that way. If it's very clear-cut, you know, it's just black and white. This is... I'm. I am sort of the the good person in this scenario, and uh, she's the person that can't be his mom right now. Um, and so I met her, and I <coughs> we uh, pulled into the child welfare office parking lot, and I popped Beckham's car seat out of my car, and I turned around, and here comes this woman sprinting across the parking lot towards me, and she's weeping, and she runs over, does not look at me, just comes over and starts talking to Beckham and kissing him. And I'm standing there very awkwardly holding this car seat, wondering what on earth is happening? Because this sort of kind of display of raw love and affection, would I be able to do that in front of a complete stranger, especially mm-hmm. in a situation like this where my child's been removed from my custody because, The government didn't think they were safe to be with me i mean it just was so vulnerable and i felt very awkward um, and very suspicious you know my immediate thought was not hmm i wonder if there's something i'm i'm missing here my immediate thought was this must not be real because it it pushes on what i already believe about this situation and uh so she had her one hour of visitation with beckham i came back to pick him up after one hour and um, I'll just never forget walking into that tiny little visitation room and seeing her with Beckham up on her shoulders, just a little tiny five pound, nine ounce baby. Um, and she has her eyes closed, but she's not sleeping. She just, he's sleeping on her so- shoulder and she's just drinking him in. She's not on her phone. She's not, you know, Busy doing other things. She is just trying to absorb every last minute that she has with mm-hmm. him in this one hour. And I took him back to our house, and she left for inpatient drug treatment. And I had agreed that she could call me once a day and get an update on him. And she would call me and ask me for any detail that I could tell her about him. And there's not a whole lot to tell about a newborn. <laughs> they don't do a whole lot. <laughs> uh, but she wanted to know everything. You know, when is he sleeping? When is he eating? Is he happy? Is he? Um, and then she would say, can you put me on speakerphone? And I would put her on speakerphone and she would sing to him over the phone. And that just just tore apart something inside of me, this this belief that I know what's happening here and I can make it be what I think it is. Because the more that I got to know Joanne, the more I realized this is real. This is who she is. She is a mom who deeply loves her son. And she's struggling with this really complex health crisis. And what do I do with that? Because... My narrative of people like her are bad people and people like her sort of need to be in jail. I could see in this particular situation that jail certainly wouldn't fix her addiction. Drugs tend to be readily available in jails and prisons. Um, And it would tear apart this vulnerable little family. She's a single mom. This is her only child. Like, what's going to happen to Beckham? over these next years if she ends up in prison for 10 years rather than getting the help that she needs to address this this issue and so the when i began to see that and when i really internalized this is a mom like me who loves her child just as much as i love my three sons it shook a deep foundation in me of wait a second everything i think i believe about drugs and addiction is based on the idea that people who are using drugs are bad people and if they're struggling with addiction, they're kind of even worse people and they're just out there doing bad things because of this identity sort of that they have as this bad person. And as that was torn apart, meeting Joanne, it, it made me want to understand what all I had not understood. Clearly I'm missing some pieces to this puzzle. I've got some bad wrong pieces in this puzzle. Um, And I was homeschooled, kindergarten through high school, and my mom was this kind of just epic learner, always trying to learn and grow. And so I I grew up with that. I have that in my personality, too. And I thought, you know, we are here being foster parents because we want to help vulnerable children. Mm. And here is something that's affecting millions of vulnerable children every year, drugs and addiction. I've misunderstood something about it. If I I am going to help this group of people that we are investing a lot into as foster parents, I need to understand this. I can't just go forward sort of closing my eyes to what I've seen. I need to dig deeper. And that took me on uh, a learning journey over the next year and a half of trying to zoom way out, like you were talking about at the beginning, you know, big picture, what is happening? And why is there so much harm? And what are the drivers of that? Because if you you know, it's like weeds in your yard. If you just keep mowing right. over the weeds, they're just going to keep coming back up. You've got to get to the root of what's causing it. And that's what I wanted to know is what is the root of all of this harm from crime, from drugs, overdoses, uh, families that are being destabilized and torn apart by it? And how can we fix those root causes of harm?
0: So it's interesting, right? I I, I love this story. It's, it's incredible. I can feel like... Um, When you started this process, you were probably like a tidal wave trying to like search out all the things about this, the root of the weeds. Um, And you seem like a very passionate human, which I love. I'm that way as well. Here's my question. What's your husband thinking during this whole thing, (laughs) right? Like all of a sudden you went from, I'm not sure I want this foster chair child to like, okay, so now we have the foster child and now everything I think I know is being shifted. And oh, by the way, now I'm on a crusade to change the way people think about the drug war.
1: Yeah, that, uh, he is a wonderful person, my college <laughs> sweetheart. We've been married for 18 years. Um, and I have, you're right, I am kind of a, a, a passionate person. And I, I was leading lots of ministries at our church at that time. It was a tutoring ministry, then a foster care ministry, an adoption ministry, Then a family preservation ministry trying to figure out how can we keep this from happening in the first place that kids ever end up in a situation where they can't grow up with their um, birth families. And uh, so (laughs) I would be sitting, you know, on my bed reading a book about this issue. Um, and this particular book, it's called Chasing the Scream. It was the, the most helpful thing that I read on my journey. And it is what ended up starting the organization of End It for Good at the nonprofit um, through a series of book discussions that I ended up um, leading on that book. But I would be sitting there reading that book and I would say, babe, listen to this. You're not going to believe it. And I would read him a little part of it. And he was like, wow, that's that's really interesting. And then I'd be going on You know, the next night and reading him a, a little more, babe unbelievable listen to this and finally about halfway through the book he said when you're done with that book I'm going to read it <laughs> <laughs> and he read it and it was like this makes total sense to me and we'll get into to what that is when I say this um and you know hey i'm ready i'm i am ready i am i have changed my mind so i'm i'm sort of the person who has to wrestle through all the details like what does this mean for me as mm-hmm. a mother what does this mean for me as a christian what does this mean for me and kind of the way that i see the world through a conservative lens and um and he's more of like hey i learned i grew i changed my mind i am ready to move forward and you know let me know when there's an action to take and um And I much more am the person who wants to sort of uh, spread whatever it is that I learn. I think, you know, gosh, if there's if if we're supposed to be out in the world bringing hope and bringing the the restoration of all of this brokenness, I want to share anything that I have learned that I think could be part of that. And I think this what I learned on this learning journey is is part of that.
0: So, um, how many times do you think you've sh- shared that story of Joanna and Beckham?
1: Mm, good Ballpark question, market. yeah, so we've done probably over a hundred interviews, presentations sure. um, yeah, a probably a thousand times yeah it's, it's been a lot <laughs> it's been a lot so
0: so here here's my question, and I was thinking about this as you were telling the story, and you do so very well, but um how, how's Joanna doing with all this kind of, uh, I, I don't want to say, I, I, well, tension, right? Like, you know, as I, so I myself have 10 years sober, um, I'm in uh, recovery ministry and I know the shame that can come mm-hmm. with this sort of thing. H- how's that tension managed between you two? And like, the story is very important to share and I know she wants to support the mission. Um, but how also does that, um, how's it, has it work or working yeah.
1: Yeah. That is a great question and it kind of goes back to my point earlier of being very careful with people's stories. Um you know, for me being the one sharing it, I'm sharing it from my perspective. Yeah. Um and and in that story, even though in my mind she is the hero of that story, that's probably not what people are going to think maybe when they hear that because they're hearing my voice talk about kind of my perspective on that. Sure. Um and there's an, an inherent power imbalance in a foster parent situation. You know, you've of got course. somebody who the government thinks is a better parent than this other parent, at least for this particular season of their life. That's just a very difficult kind of relationship to navigate. Um, and Joanne has been, you know, from the beginning, I would I asked her, hey, can I use you know, can I tell our story in this TEDx talk? She said, yes, absolutely. I want people to hear that there is hope after addiction, that there is, um, you know, just to, to hear what God has done through bringing the two of us together um, and have asked her many times since then, are you still okay with this? Are you still okay with this? Um, and we're actually, <clears throat> we've got a um, conference coming up next month and she's going to come to the conference and uh, tell her side of the story. She's one of our speakers. And then uh, Beckham is coming with her. The conference happens to fall on his eighth birthday. Oh, wow. Uh, and he is a little drummer extraordinaire. And so we've got a blues band that's going to be there afterwards. He's going to play with them. And it's just a celebration of um, them alongside other speakers that are coming in for that for that conference, but just I'm so excited to give her that chance to just talk about it from her perspective. Um, And I am continually just amazed and humbled by her willingness to allow her story to be shared um, in such a public way. That is, in my mind, just such a a sacred trust, I feel uh, Mm -hmm. on, on my Side to to steward that story in a way that is honoring to her and her experience, because not everybody not everybody wants to talk about the fact that they're in recovery. Not everybody wants to share the painful parts of that journey. Yeah. Uh, they don't want people to know that their kids ever were in foster care. There's so many parts of that that are very understandably just so personal and so painful. Um, and she has said from the beginning, and and has always said. Um, no, I I want you to share it. I want people to hear that uh, that there is hope. There are you know other ways that we can be approaching these issues. And she and I are even open about the fact that we've we may not agree on sort of all of the solutions, um, sure. and that's fine. And she, and she says that she's like, now you know, Christina, I don't necessarily agree with you on everything. I'm like, that's fine. I, I'm. Our whole organization is built on the idea that people don't have to agree to have good conversation and to learn together um, and that we can find points of agreement and we can fo- still have areas where we disagree. We might be able to work together on on one thing that we agree on. Uh, maybe that's uh, you know some of the work that you do with uh, sober living housing for mothers with children that's something she's really passionate about now. Um, and she has been sober since Beckham was a baby after 20 years of yeah. using, you know, it's just incredible what, and she would say, this is what the Lord has done in my life. Um, and now being able to give that back and, um, she has a ministry now that is helping mothers get back on their feet and, um, a home for a mother with children. And anyway, it's just really incredible, uh, But it is something I continually think about because I'm talking about an issue that I have not experienced the pain of personally. Mm. I haven't lost someone that I love to an overdose. I've never been through uh, substance use disorder. Um, I've never had my kids in foster care. There's so many of the painful parts of that that I'm that I'm talking about. And, yeah, I recognize that I'm not um, I can I can tell and use the story in the life that god has led me on and also recognize that there are many other people who have experienced this in a very different way and it's so important to hear their voices and to hear um to to provide that space for people to share in their own words
0: well, i really appreciate the way you talk about stewarding her story i think that that's really good language that a lot of us could key in on when we tell stories that are of this kind of importance. And I think what makes this so important is, is how you really end the story, which is um, from your perspective. And and I would agree with you is that this is really about life and about seeing people and about not criminalizing. Uh, I'm wondering if you can, could, could make the connection for us. Um, uh, Why is this, uh, idea about changing the war on drugs really about being pro-life mm,
1: yeah and that's definitely how i see it um although i would say i i only saw it that way after i sort of learned about these root causes of harm so i kind of this issue is really complex you know you can yeah, take a, a tiny sure. little yeah. uh tiny little bite off of the um the massive piece of pie um but in in terms of kind of thinking just big picture on three areas you think about like the market that that a drug is sold in the person who's buying the drug and then what drug it is that they're using so kind of all three components of a market you've got a seller a buyer and a product that's changing hands and as i learned i i realized oh i i had always thought that when you ban a, a substance you ban a drug you make it illegal It sort of is the ultimate form of regulation. This is like this thing is so dangerous that we just have to ban it. And what I started to learn was that actually it is the absence of any kind of regulation because any kind of popular substance that is not sold legally is going to move into an underground market. And that market is governed by crime and violence. The money that comes into that market is funding crime and violence. And so the underground drug market is about $500 billion a year. All of that money is going to gangs, cartels, terrorist organizations, and funding any of the work that they, you know, I say work, say that in quotes, um, any of the things that they want to do, which are very detrimental to. not just individuals, but communities, whole countries, you can see what's happening south of our border with the destabilization of entire countries that you have cartels that have become so powerful that they are ruling communities through crime and violence, um, and also destabilizing government systems. And so the, the prohibition of drugs actually leads to far more crime and violence. The majority of crime that we think about as related to drugs is actually crime that is caused by uh, the prohibition of that drug, forcing it into the underground market. Kind of the same thing that happened during alcohol prohibition, where you had these legal businesses that had to close their doors, but then you've got the Al Capone's of the world who are very happy to sell alcohol to anyone who wants to buy it. And so you have lots of people still drinking alcohol because if they wanted to drink it, they could still get it. Um, But now they're drinking unregulated alcohol, they're buying it from people who are breaking the law, their money is going to help people break the law even more. Um, So I came to see on that front that really criminalizing a drug is not fighting crime, it's really funding crime, providing such a massive financial incentive for people to um, engage in that. And I actually was talking to a guy Um, He he grew up in the United States, but his mom is from Colombia. And she grew up uh, at a time when the government encouraged them to have their blood type somewhere on their body. So as I'm talking to him, he's showing me this little necklace that he wears. It was his mom's necklace. The charm is a little cutout of the the shape of the country of Colombia. And on the back of that charm is his mom's blood type. Mm. And she wore that as a child growing up because the – violence of the cartels in colombia which was empowered by the prohibition of cocaine and and other drugs made it so dangerous that even though her family was not involved in the drug trade there just for regular citizens just getting caught in the crossfire uh, they they needed to have their blood type on them in case they would end up in the hospital that that's just mind-boggling to think about the level of uh the lack of safety that um, the empowerment of criminal organizations has created for so many citizens and people who are, uh, many of them now trying to flee from those places where they can't live in, in safety. Um, so that was kind of a, a, a really startling thing to learn kind of on that market side about the increase in crime and violence from pushing a drug um, underground. And then for a lot of people, the thing that's top of mind right now is overdoses. Um, Drug overdose is now the leading cause of accidental death in the United States. Uh, It's hard to find people, even though I have not had a a family member who has died. I've known several people who have died of overdoses. Um, And most people have that experience depending on in some communities, you'll find people who've lost multiple family members to overdose, they've lost multiple classmates if they're in college, it's just unbelievable how widespread this is. So when we think about what's causing that the vast majority of people who die from an overdose die because they used an unregulated drug. They didn't know what was in it. So they bought some pill that they thought was going to be, you know, an Oxycontin and actually it had fentanyl in it. Um, So when we think about the overdose crisis, there's kind of this connection in our mind for a lot of us that prescriptions are the problem. We kind of heard that narrative over the last 20 years. But the overdose crisis is not a problem of prescriptions It's actually the opposite. It's a problem of unregulated drugs that people are buying. Um, and that's what happens when people can't access a quality controlled drug. So anytime you push that drug underground, goes into the underground market, there's no regulations there. There's no quality control. People get whatever random concoction of whatever anybody wants to put in a pill or in a little baggie somewhere uh, that they're buying. And it makes appropriate dosing impossible. And so you get this very potent substance because anytime you need to smuggle something, you need it to be kind of the biggest punch in the smallest package. So you need uh, high-potency drugs. We have fentanyl now that's in this underground drug supply. And people are dying at unprecedented numbers. And that is continuing to grow in part because um, as prescriptions become harder to get, more and more people are using illegal drugs. Illegal drug use has grown uh it's by a hundred percent over the last twenty years, so it's doubled the number of people that are using um, illegal drugs over the last twenty years so the 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 trajectory that we're moving in is towards more and more people using those unregulated highly potent um, substances so that was that's a really hard one too Um uh, you know, we don't want people yeah, u- We don't want people using any kind of drug. <laughs> I was gonna
0: say. I was gonna say. Because this is what I keep hearing in my head, right? Like, I, I keep hearing it. Well, is, is she suggesting that we create a regulated market for like heroin and oxycontin? Like, like, and that's that's uh, that's hard. That's hard yeah. for me to wrap around my brain, especially because I know so many addicts who um, who would describe their their problem, not so much as they just have a stopping problem, right? Like I, I did, you know, I, I always say I never had a drinking problem. I was actually a really good drinker, but I had a stopping problem that I could never just stop with four or eight or 16, right? Like mm-hmm. it, I was a binge drinker. And so I went really hard and then I took a couple days off and I could hide it. And I was in ministry when all that was happening. Mm. So uh, yeah. he- help, help me. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, so I resonate with you, <laughs> even though this is the work that I do, I resonate with you with that kind of like, oh, th- these are hard problems to solve because if we criminalize and prohibit, we get all this crime and violence, we get all this contamination right. and all these people dying. If we bring some of these drugs back into a legally regulated market, there's other harms that happen there. Are people going, you know, there's there's some level of- I mean, of, there's a um, heck
0: of a market for Suboxone in Dayton.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's. Which is a regulated
0: drug that is is now being manipulated to help keep people on that Mm -hmm. level buzz, right? Like. Yeah. So
1: there's. I think one of the keys on this issue is that there is no perfect solution. Yeah. Um, and I think we've been looking for that perfect solution. I mean, the idea of prohibiting a drug is the idea of a perfect solution, that if we just ban it, it will sort of go away and yeah, and, right. it, and we don't have to deal with it anymore. And what we've seen is, you know, there's a one of the book, stories that I tell in my book that's just coming out called Curious, is of a mom who realizes her son is even using heroin. She didn't even know he was using drugs until... A neighbor calls her and says, I just saw your son on the side of the road being arrested at this, you know, the gas station down the street. And she goes and he's injecting heroin. Like, how did this happen? She didn't even know that he was using any drugs. He was just a teenager, you know, in, in uh, early high school. And so for her, she said, you know, this this moment of as she begins to listen to him and learn about this part of his life that she didn't realize was happening. She realizes he can go out of the house and get heroin easily in this small town in Mississippi that they live in. And it just is her mind just starts kind of exploding, realizing just because I don't see it doesn't mean it's not here it is here It. i don't see it because i don't want to see it uh but if i wanted to see if i wanted to go get heroin yeah. it's kind of there for anybody teenagers adults it's another one of those problems of um of not having some sort of legally regulated market is that there's no age restrictions on purchasing and so you've got 15 year old they can go buy from the guy down the street just like you know the 35 year olds can um, and they're going to be getting something contaminated. Unlike alcohol, where you have kids drinking underage, they're at least getting a, a regulated product. They know that yep. it doesn't have, you know, um, methanol in it or something like that that's going to you know make them go blind. Things that we had during alcohol prohibition in the in the 20s. So so for me, I, I still feel this tension. Um, And we do invite people to think about what could it look like to move some drugs back into legal markets, not as a way to eliminate harm, because that's not possible, but as a way to reduce some of these core issues of harm around uh, the explosion of crime, uh, so many people dying from overdose, and then recognizing, too, that. That we have done this successfully with other drugs. Alcohol is an example of that. We don't have, we have lots of harm from alcohol. People get addicted to it. People, um, it can just destroy your life. And yet we have taken measures to try to reduce that harm. Um, We still have a lot of harm from it, but we don't have the extra harms that we had during. During prohibition, and then with with smoking, kind of a similar thing, we sure. have significantly decreased the number of people who smoke cigarettes. Not by criminalizing them, but by um, educating people honestly about the health problems that can come from that, and then making it less socially acceptable. To be smoking, and I I, let me just say, I'm I'm not trying to. um, (laughs) For anybody who's listening that's smoking, but it it is universally recognized it is not good for your health to smoke combustible (laughs) cigarettes, and so facts um, facts. that is just a fact. So, um, but we have really decreased the number of people who are smoking cigarettes by educating people and by making. Some positive incentives, like your insurance premium is, premium is going to be less if you don't smoke, um, and some negative incentives. You can't smoke in all these different places. And so if you're smoking, it's, there's going to be some rub there for you. You can't just pull out a cigarette anytime you want to if you're in the restaurant you know, you you can't smoke. When I was growing up, we used to take the Greyhound bus up to my grandparents' house in Iowa and people just, you know, were smoking in the Greyhound bus and they're smoking in the bathroom in the Greyhound bus. And, you know, you you can't do that. That's that's not allowed anymore. And so we have other ways of, of significantly influencing people's choices around substance use that is more effective than just prohibition is without all those kind of additional harms that that come from that. So it's a really challenging thing. um, And there's still a lot of gray area about how do you do that best with some of these substances that, you know, they used to be legal a hundred years ago. Cocaine was legal. Heroin was legal. um, And yet how, how would we, how would we do that now? There are some good models that other countries are trying Um, certainly not going to be a a painless process, but I think thinking through how we can reduce, thinking through how to reduce harm rather than just how do we try to just sort of clamp down on the problem and, and look away from all of the unintended consequences that, that happened because of that. Um, So those are, those are more challenging ones. I think the easier one for people to begin to rethink is what do we do with consumers? People like Joanne Um, right now we've got, you know, couple hundred thousand people a year who are being arrested just for possessing a drug. You know, it's yeah, not, I, they're I, not I, I assaulting. Kinda, they're, you
0: know, we've got to figure out an answer for that. Cause that's not clearly, th- 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 for me, that's low hanging fruit. We could do mm-hmm. something about that. pretty yeah.
1: quick. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so there, that for me is where I find that kind of commonality of, you know, right. some of these bigger questions of what do we do with, with drugs, their markets, the contamination problems. Those are really tough and it's going to take us some time to figure out what to do with that. But, The research clearly shows us now that people who are struggling with addiction, it is not because they're bad people. It's because they are dealing with a lot of internal pain, whether that's from childhood trauma, whether that's from isolation, loneliness, mental health issues, all these different causes. But increasing the trauma and pain in their life through the criminal justice system is not a path to healing, they need healing from trauma and pain and suffering, not more of it. And I think that's where we can really take a step forward to say we, we've we got some challenging issues on drugs and addiction, but we can move towards treating people who are using drugs as people who uh, might need help if they're struggling with an addiction um, and certainly people who we want to uh, to stay alive to really focus on what is the reason for their drug use you know the the drug is not the problem it's the solution attempt at the the other things sure. going on in their life and so if you if we focus on that drug i think that's the easy thing to do we we can see it we can say don't use that drug it's much harder to ask a person and to get curious about what is that drug doing for them, what problem is it solving for them, even if it's creating a thousand more problems in their life, there's a reason they're using it. There is something that it is medicating for them, and until we can help people to find that deep healing that we all want to experience, there, it's going to be very difficult for them to stop using um, the drug that that they're currently using or maybe addicted to. And I think that is when you talk about um, Joanne and her story is finding that deep healing for yeah. the, the empty places in her life, for the wanting the acceptance as a teenager, for you know, all of those things and finding those things in other places. It's kinda like a cup. You know, if you if you're, if your life has been difficult and it feels empty, the drugs fill it up. So if we are going to ask people to not fill their life up with the drugs, we have to be inviting them, equipping them, supporting them as they fill their life up with other things instead, with the good things, with the things that are truly going to bring the life that God created them for. And I think that is the, the, the hope and the role for the church to play, certainly. Uh, For faith communities to say, how can we help people build a life that they want to be fully present for? How can we help them build the community and relationships that provide them that deep sense of belonging? How can we help them see their purpose in the world, the purpose that God made them for? Those are the things that are going to help us become a healthier society, whether whether it's a substance use disorder that you're struggling with or whether you know there's numerous other kinds of addictions. You might be addicted to Facebook. You might be addicted to food. You might be addicted sure. to pornography. There's just so many other things. Um, it's not just drugs. All of those things are filling up the parts of us that are hurting, that are empty. And the church has an opportunity to, to not turn a blind eye. And to not just come down with the hammer of, well, you just need to get your act together, but realizing we are all hurting people who are longing for the life that God made us for. And yet we live in a broken world that makes that life difficult to build. How can we build it together? And how can we come alongside people who are struggling to build that life and build it together and be part of that supportive community together?
0: I love it. I love it. Okay, I have one more question for you, but before I ask it, I know that uh, my f- podcast family is going to want to find you all over the interwebs. Pick up a copy of your book, Curious. Where is the best place to learn uh, all things that uh, that you are doing and that your ministry is doing?
1: Yeah, you can find us on social media at End It For Good MS MS like Mississippi. Um, End it for Good MS on social media. You can go to enditforgood.com. And we also have, I'll just throw this out there, we have a, um, a freebie called Five Keys to Having Productive Conversations on Polarizing Topics. So maybe you've got leaders listening who, the issue of drugs and addiction, not really their thing, but they are really interested in how you yeah. can have great conversations. Um, these are just the things that we have found. We've led discussions on this issue of inviting people to rethink the use of the criminal justice system with drugs. Um, it's a tough issue We're working in Mississippi uh, primarily, which is one of the most religious and conservative states in the country, and yet we've had uh, 1,500 people who have come to these discussions and we've been facilitating dialogue with, and these are the five top things that we have learned about doing that on a tough issue, and you can get that at enditforgood.com slash freebies. Um, So, yeah, come join us on the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there. I write it. It'll come to you, let let you know about all the things that we're doing. Love to find... um, have you find us on social media? And yes, you can get the book "Curious" on Amazon. It is the the book length version of the conversation that we've been having. More, um, it starts when I'm nine, as I begin to develop the way I think about crime and drugs and the role of the criminal justice system. Growing up in a in a high crime part of Jackson, and then all the way through to the present day, and that journey of learning, um, and also a lot of things we didn't get into today. You know, how do I wrestle through? Uh, the idea of legally regulating some drug as a Christian, as a mother, yeah. as you know, kind of all of these different things. Um, I really the the book is is a memoir on this particular issue for <laughs> me, and kind of all of that wrestling and how I came to the place that I did, and then an invitation for people to be part of in whatever way they they feel called to be, and whatever area they think they need to see change, whether that's in policy, whether it's just in their local church, whether it's just with a family member Mm. that they have who is struggling, and maybe that relationship has been deeply damaged, um, there are ideas and resources in the book to help you engage in a helpful way, because no matter what we do on the policy side, there are always going to be people struggling with addiction. And our churches are always going to need to be better equipped to deal with that. Yeah, and, right. and, and that is part of what I, I wanted to do in the book is to say, there's a couple things that happen to be my heart changed and my mind changed about the policy. Those can go together. They don't have to, it could just be a kind of a, a heart change on, maybe we need to approach the issue of addiction a little bit differently. Um, but no matter what, I think everybody listening to this wants better outcomes related to addiction because so many people are struggling with it. And they're in our pews, whether we realize it or not. Um, mm-hmm. They are parents whose children are suffering. The average length of time that a family goes struggling with a family member with a, with a, an addiction before they tell anyone about it is seven years. Wow. So, there are lots of families in your circle for anyone who's listening, who have a family member who's struggling and they're probably struggling silently. And we can help create um, a, a place for them to be able to find that kind of uh, support. I was talking to a mom who, you know, her son started using drugs, uh, was introduced to them by kids in the youth group. So we <laughs> think about, you know, we just gotta get our, our kids in church and then we just won't have to deal with this issue. Not true. Um, you can read Joanne's story in in the book Curious, the, the more fleshed out version of her story and her beginning of substance use. You'll find a, a similar um, experience for her, and so it is. Uh, we cannot kind of stick our head in the sand or think. You know, if we just go to church every time the doors are open, we can right. we can put the blinders on. We're not going to have to deal with this. It is everywhere. And the more we can look it in the face and learn and engage, the, the healthier our communities are going to be. And ultimately, for us as believers, it's helping more people live out who they were created to be in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And that is, for me, my—that's my, a reason I am engaged on an issue that I don't really have another connection to and i don't want people using drugs so this isn't like a hey i think we should just move away from the criminal justice system because you know we should be free and go do whatever we want to and get high i don't want that um but we have an opportunity to shift the way that we have been approaching this issue in a way that can help more people experience the life god made them for and that is an exciting thing
0: very exciting Uh, Okay, last question. Last question I always love to ask people. It's an advice question. I'm going to ask you to go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice, except I get to name the season of life that you're in. And so I want to take you back um, to the day before you fostered your first foster child. Right? Um, I I would imagine a young mom, idealistic, the world is ahead of you, You don't really know what's going to come. You certainly don't know uh, anything about uh, Beckham and Joanne and all of this that will eventually change your trajectory. But if trajectory, if you could go back in time, sit knee to knee with that younger version of yourself, hold her hands and look her in the eye. What's the one thing you're going to tell
1: her? You do not know everything. Hmm. And I think I thought I did. Uh, And, you know, there's a sense of of being a learner where you learn and learn. And if you're not really careful, it becomes a sense of, I know, I know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm the learner most people are out there just sort of going through life I'm the one who has kind of figured out how this how the world works and I certainly had a sense of of certainty over this is how the world works I understand how people are Um, and I have the solutions that's why I'm a foster mom because I'm going to come in and help save this day And I am so thankful that the Lord brought Joanne into my life. Uh, It changed me profoundly, not just on this issue, but it deeply humbled me by exposing uh, I'm not as empathetic as I thought I was. Uh, I'm empathetic in some instances, and yet I could turn that empathy off at the flip of a switch Uh, Mm -hmm. for people. I can be empathetic to people who I think deserve it, deeply empathetic. And I can also be deeply judgmental for people who I don't think deserve it. Um, So that's what I would tell her, that younger Christina needed to know that she did not know everything. And the Lord was going to shake her life up, turn it upside down, and do what he needed to do to show her you do not know everything and you need to change that posture of pride and into a posture of being willing to say, I don't know, tell me your story. Tell me your experiences. How do you think? Um, cause I probably have a lot to learn from that.
0: Praise God. That's so good. Christina, thank you so much uh, for the time today. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for your willingness. Um, to tell your story and to steward other stories so well. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Tony. I appreciate you inviting me on, and I um, appreciate your ministry as well. It's so needed. Anyone who's out there leading things as a person of faith, we need all the the encouragement and the investment <laughs> and the ideas and um, that, that we can get, and you're doing that, and I appreciate it.
0: Listen to what Christina has to say for her heart. I think there's some really good things here. Some things that we have to take into consideration. You know, again, I, I love the dialogue around respectful dialogue, around the cycle of harm, around her experience as a foster mom and what makes the most sense. And, you know, one of the big takeaways for all of us is how do we find the connection and uh, and point it to our own lives? Such a good dialogue. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate you Next week, we'll be back with our deeper dive episodes, which actually next week it'll release on Thanksgiving. So i uh, excited to bring you an episode all about gratitude. Well, guys, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And remember, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move. Must be willing to move.